How about if we pray for the city right now? Lord, it's weekends like this one when we are reminded of the great, great need that the world has for Christ. The great need that we as the people of God have for compassion and wisdom and understanding and love. And so, Lord, we pray for ourselves. We want to be able to get inside the heads and hearts and emotions of those who have experienced things that many of us have never experienced. Lord, we know that there are those who just simply cause trouble, but we also know that there are those who genuinely grieve in their hearts because they endure things that many of us don't. And so give us the heart of Christ. Father, give us your love. Give us your understanding. And we do pray for a calm to come over our city. May people, may churches, may leaders turn to you in times like these. We pray in Christ's name. God's people agreed by saying, I told you last week that this book, this book, is primarily about God, right? From cover to cover. And so you don't go to that book to try to find success formulas or how-tos. There's a lot of practical stuff in there, but fundamentally you go to this book to know God to know who he is, to know what he's like, to know his purposes, his plans, his will, his heart. And then secondarily to that theme is the theme of man. And the primary theme dealing with mankind in this book is the theme of salvation. Again, from cover to cover. It's a story of the fact that All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Adam sinned and fell short of the glory of God. Abraham sinned and fell short of the glory of God. Moses, King David, Solomon, all the prophets sinned and fell short of the glory of God. The the apostles fell short of the glory of God. You and I have sinned and fall short of God's glory. And so the Bible tells us that very clearly. But then it also tells us that man is incapable of saving himself. We're all drowning in the middle of the ocean with great, great need for someone to come along and rescue us. We're all on the 10th floor of a 10-story building with the nine floors below us engulfed in flames. We cannot save ourselves. We have to have someone come to our rescue. That's the plight of mankind, the Bible says. Man is incapable of saving himself. But then the Bible tells us that God can, is willing and able to rescue those who are perishing. 
That's the theme of salvation. The greatest narrative in this book. God saves. God saves those because of his mercy, because of the greatness of his love. He saves all who will turn to him. Now before we get to 1 Peter, which is going to be all about salvation this morning, the verses that we're looking at, we're preaching through 1 Peter in case you are new this morning or haven't been here for the last three weeks. And this morning we're going to be focused in on just a few verses that deal with salvation and the greatness of our salvation. But before we get there, I just want to give you a taste of this great theme of salvation in Christ that we find in the Bible. Okay? Are you ready? Here we go. Luke 2. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Luke 19. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. John 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Acts 2, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Acts 4, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Romans 10, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 1 Corinthians 1, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith. 1 Thessalonians 5, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 1, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Titus 2, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Hebrews 5, being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Hebrews 7, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. 1 John 4, and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. And lastly, Revelation 7 after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Amen. Wow, what a theme. What a theme. Friends, it's undeniable. That's the, that's the theme of this book. That a holy and just God is also a loving and compassionate and merciful God. And he has done everything needed in order to make salvation possible. Now, it is that salvation that occupy, occupied Peter's thoughts when he wrote the verses that we're going to look at this morning. 
And so as you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word to honor his word. Let's read it together. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Amen. Please be seated. Now, what Peter's going to do here in these verses, he's going to tell us about the greatness of our salvation by focusing on some of those who played, played and play key roles in that whole narrative of salvation. What was their perspective? What was the perspective of the prophets? What was the perspective of, what was the role of the Holy Spirit in this whole process? What, is, what was the perspective of those who preached the gospel? And then lastly, he's going to tell us amazingly the what the angels in heaven thought about all of this going on in terms of God providing salvation. There's great value, I think, at times in, in looking at a situation through the eyes, through the emotions, through the feelings of the various players involved in the narrative. There's the big story, and then there's the individual stories. And that's what he's going to do here this morning. He gives us a little glimpse in these verses. He wants for us to see ourselves through the eyes of the prophets, see our salvation through the eyes of the prophets. He wants for us to see our salvation from the perspective of the Holy Spirit. He wants us to see our salvation through the lives of those who preached and preach and proclaim the gospel. And then lastly, amazingly, he's actually going to take us up into the heavens and say, this is the way the angels in heaven think about your salvation. Okay? So let's break it down. First of all, there's salvation prophesied. Verse 10, concerning this salvation, so that's his theme, the prophets who prophesied searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time it was that they were prophesying about. They write down these things in Isaiah and Micah and some of the other prophets. And he says they, they searched trying to figure out who is this and when is this going to happen? He's referring to the Old Testament prophets. The prophets were appointed by God, commissioned by God for basically a dual ministry, both to minister con contemporaneously to the people of their own day in terms of their waywardness and their rebellion against God, calling them to come back. Israel, come back to God. Judah, come back to God. Stop following the, the, the false gods and the idols of the nations around you. So that was their first ministry. And their second ministry was to look to the future. Things that were still going to happen, that they were going to be taken into exile, for example, in Babylon. But ultimately, they looked to the future coming of the Messiah. They knew that God was going to send the Messiah. They didn't really know a lot of the details of that, of that and that's why they searched and inquired, because the Holy Spirit is going to give them things to write that they did not understand, as we'll see in just a minute. So that was the second part of their ministry. Let me, give, let me show you some examples. 
The prophet Isaiah wrote in chapter 7, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so the Holy Spirit gave Isaiah the prophet, the prophet Isaiah, that statement to write down. And Isaiah wouldn't have had a clue as to what in the world, how is this going to be? The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Or how about Isaiah 9? The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And then he says, for to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice, with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore. Now, friends, Isaiah's ministry was roughly from 740 to 700 B.C., 700 to 740 years before the birth of Christ, he's writing these things. Did Isaiah comprehend what he was writing? Who this child was that would be born and who would bear all those titles? Mighty God, Prince of Peace, Wonderful Counselor? No. And so Peter says, Isaiah searched and inquired carefully, trying to figure out who is this that I just wrote about here? How about the prophet Micah? Micah chapter 5. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time. In other words, God, God will give up Israel until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. In the majesty of the name of the Lord is God, they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Did Micah understand what he was writing? No. No way. Again, he wrote roughly 700 years before the time of Christ. He wrote about Bethlehem, that a ruler would come forth from this tiny, obscure Judean village who would shepherd his flock. And so like Isaiah, Micah would have searched and inquired intently into the scriptures, trying to figure out who this is. You say, well, is 700 years far enough to go back in time? Well, Peter didn't think so. In Acts chapter 3, he quotes from Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is Moses, 1,400 years, Exodus Moses. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And then Peter comments on that by saying, Acts 3, and all the prophets who have spoken... From Samuel on, those who came after him also proclaimed these days, the days of the arrival of the Messiah Christ. And of course, Peter was only following the example of Jesus, who did the exact same thing. He read and interpreted from Moses and all the prophets the scriptures concerning himself. Now, think about this. 
In terms of salvation prophesied, scholars roughly estimate that there are between 250 and 300 Old Testament prophecies that deal specifically with the person of Jesus Christ, the coming of Christ. 300. They deal with his virgin birth, the place of his birth, his family lineage, the fact that he would be rejected and scorned and mocked and spit upon, his titles that he would bear, prophecies about his crucifixion, all these prophecies. There are two, two scientists who do research in the area of statistical probability. Their names are Peter Stoner and Robert Newman. And they work with the statistical probability of certain things happening, okay? And they took eight, just eight of all the prophecies dealing with Jesus, that he was born in Bethlehem, that someone would come before him to, to prepare the way for him, it'd be John the Baptist, that he would come into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, that his hands would be pierced, that he would be sold for 30 pieces of silver. Think about that. Of all the people throughout the history of the world who have been betrayed, how many of them were betrayed for 30 pieces of silver? Just that one prophecy alone. That the 30 pieces of silver would be returned and be used to buy a potter's field. That in his trial, he would not open his mouth and give a self-defense. And lastly, that he would be crucified. That would be the form of death. So they took those eight prophecies and said, what are the statistical probabilities of those eight prophecies being fulfilled in one man? And they calculated the number to be one in 10 to the 17th power. So, you know, what does that mean? <laughs> well, they illustrate it. They said, suppose you take 10 to the 17th silver dollars, lay them side by side on the face of Texas, and we've got a map of Texas, there it is. Silver dollars on the face of Texas, it would need to be two feet deep of silver dollars on the face of Texas. Take one of those silver dollars and put a red X on it, throw it in the pile, shuffle them all around, however you would do that, I'm not sure. Then take one man and blindfold him and send him in there. He can go any place he wants in the state of Texas, but he has to pick up the one dollar that is marked with the red X. Those are the probabilities of eight prophecies of Jesus Christ being fulfilled in one man. Salvation prophesied, friends. Is God invested in this? He's been invested in this for centuries, from before the foundation of the world. Secondly, is salvation purchased? It says the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. They prophesied about what? They prophesied about God's grace. Salvation being made possible by God's grace. Say, well, what's grace? Grace is God's goodness shown toward those who deserve only punishment. God's favor shown toward those who don't deserve favor. God's kindness and goodness extended to those who deserve nothing good at all. But friends, God's grace was costly. We know that, don't we? I'm, for the most part, preaching to the choir this morning. We know these things, but we need to be reminded of these things. God's grace was costly. It required the sacrifice of his beloved son on the cross in order to meet, to meet the demand for justice. God's justice had to be met. And so there would be a cost involved. 
Our sins could not go unaddressed. Either we suffer the consequences for our sins, the punishment, or someone else does on our behalf. Peter will later say in verse 18 of chapter 1, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And Paul writes in Ephesians 2, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, while we were still at enmity with God, Christ died for us. Now, friends, understand, God is not obligated to show grace to anyone. God is not obligated to show grace. He chooses to. In fact, God said it himself. Exodus 33, the Lord said to Moses, You have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And Ephesians 2 says the same thing. Wayne Grudem expresses it really well. I want to read an extended quote here. Had God decided to save no one out of the entire sinful human race, he would be perfectly just to do so. And no one could complain of unfairness on his part. But God decided to do much more than merely meet the demands of justice. He decided to save some sinful human beings. If he had decided to save only five human beings out of the entire human race, that would have been much more than justice. It would have been a great demonstration of mercy and grace. If he had decided to save only 100 out of the whole human race, it would have been an amazing demonstration of mercy and love. But God, in fact, has chosen to do much more than that. He has decided to redeem out of sinful mankind a great multitude whom no man can number from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. This is incalculable mercy and love, far beyond our comprehension. It is all undeserved favor. It is all of grace. Amen. Salvation purchased. Peter wants for his readers to think about the cost of our salvation. This salvation which by grace is yours. Thirdly, is salvation predicted. And so the prophets, Isaiah and Micah and the others, it says that they searched and inquired carefully. They poured over the scriptures inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. And so you've got the critical role of the Holy Spirit in your salvation. Peter is reminding us that what the prophets prophesied in your Old Testament, it was not of their own doing. They were simply passing along what the Holy Spirit predicted and gave to them to write down. In fact, the verse from 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, 
Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's the role of the Holy Spirit in getting salvation ready for us. It says, when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So predict means what? It means to forecast. It means to foretell. It means to foresee. I mean, we're always trying to predict things, aren't we? Man's always trying to predict things in our lack of omniscience. We don't know, and so we guess. We try to predict the weather. We try to predict the path of a hurricane, and we miss on that. We try to predict the future of the stock markets and make investment decisions. We try to predict whether the cards will win the division. Probably not. <laughs> you see, for man, a prediction is simply the best informed guess that we can come up with. You study all the stuff you've got, and you crunch the numbers, and you come up with a prediction. We're pretty, we think, we think the hurricane's going to go here, but we're not positive. We think the stock market's going to do this, we're not real sure. Whereas when the Holy Spirit predicts, predict means to say in advance. And the Holy Spirit predicts with 100% accuracy because the Holy Spirit doesn't guess. The Holy Spirit is simply declaring things that are going to be. And that's what he did with the prophets. And he says two things in particular that the Holy Spirit predicted or foretold. The sufferings of Christ... When he predicted the sufferings of Christ, so his crucifixion, his suffering, his passion, and the subsequent glories, his resurrection, his ascension, his glorification. Now, in your Bible, the most graphic, most amazing, most alarming predictive passage that you have about the sufferings of Christ, but also hints of his glory is given to us in Isaiah 53. And you should be familiar with Isaiah 53. It's a passage that Jews who study the scriptures don't know what to do with. They don't have an answer for Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrow isn't acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. We esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. Imagine Isaiah writing these words and wondering as he's writing, who is this? All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? They made his grave with the wicked, with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, There is no deceit in his mouth. 
and yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, God, has put him, Jesus, the Son, to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. The writer of Hebrews says of Christ, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. He could see it. He could see the results of what he was doing. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. How would anyone of their own accord or imagination have come up with that? The next thing that Peter tells us is salvation preached. He says to the people to whom he was writing, and God would say to us, these are the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. So now we bring in the role of those who preach, those who proclaim, those who bring the good news. And the Holy Spirit's still working through them. The Holy Spirit worked through the prophets, and now the Holy Spirit is still working through the preaching of his word, the proclamation of the gospel. <clears throat> and this is exactly what the apostles did, isn't it? They preached the good news. Mark 16, they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. And you say, well, what exactly did they preach? They preached the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. See, friends, the power of the apostles' preaching wasn't in their eloquence. The power of the apostles' preaching wasn't in their powerful stories or personal illustrations or great sense of humor. I mean, all of those things can make a preacher likable and approachable and personable, but that's not where the power is. The power is in the gospel. The power is in the gospel being proclaimed. As foolish as it sounds to the world, and that's exactly what Paul said in 1 Corinthians, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. It is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through its wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. And the amazing thing to me is that for 2,000 plus years, God has continued to honor the preaching of his word, the proclamation, not just by, mind you, not just by pastors, but the proclamation of his word by his people. You are all preachers of the gospel, not vocationally, but in life. God has given you a tongue to use. 
God has given you a story in your heart. God has given you a changed life by his grace. Don't squander it. Use it for the advancement and the spreading of the good news to others. People who need to hear. People who need to be saved. People who need salvation. May we open our mouths and proclaim the good news. That makes you a vital part of this narrative, right? It wasn't just Paul and Peter and Barnabas and John and James who went about preaching. That was the people who were scattered to Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia. It was the people who went proclaiming the good news and what it had done for them. And then lastly, I just love the fact that Peter throws in this last little tidbit. I call it salvation pondered. Things into which angels long to look. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? You and I are holding truths in our hands with our Bibles. You and I have experienced things in our lives through salvation. These are things that heavenly beings long to look into. Long to look. The idea of craning your neck, bending down. You know, you're up here. I want to see. I want to. I, I picture. I picture my daughter-in-law's third grade class gathered around a table as there's one little chrysalis that's ready to become a butterfly, and the whole class is gathered around, pushing and shoving, and trying to see as the butterfly emerges from the chrysalis. That's the angels in heaven, craning their necks, bending, wanting to wanting to see closer. We, uh, we were in Michigan for the, um, the eclipse. You, you all here had the show. And we had 75%, which wasn't a whole lot. Um, it was just this big, bright sun until you put on the glasses. And we were out on the pier in Lake Michigan with probably another 20 people out there thinking maybe this is the place to see it. And there was one pair of glasses. We were all fighting to get our hands on that one pair of glasses. Why? Because we wanted to see. We wanted to see it. And then you put on the glasses. Oh, my goodness. I had no idea. You take off the glasses, nothing. Put the glasses on. See, friends, that's the angels. The angels want to see. They crane their necks to look into the things of God's grace. You say, why would the angels care? Why would the angels care? about our salvation. Well, as near as I can get, if the angels' primary ministry is to praise and glorify God, the more they can know about his grace, the more reason they will have to glorify him. They long to look into these things of which you and I are beneficiaries. We're the ones who have benefited from salvation, not them. Well, what's the takeaway from all this? I would just give you four very simple ideas. Number one, be amazed at your salvation. Be amazed. Think about it often. Don't take it for granted. Don't treat it like chopped liver. Don't treat it like something you picked up at the discount store or the dollar store. Treat it like a treasure. Treat it like a treasure. Be amazed. Open your Bible and be amazed. And if you, you tend to go there and you're not, ask the Holy Spirit, Spirit of God, give me a sense of, help me to see wondrous things in this book of salvation. 
Secondly, be like the prophets. Search and inquire. Search the scriptures. Find things that you never knew before. The prophets searched. They inquired carefully. Search the scriptures. Study the Bible. If you need to get into BSF or CBS or something else where you study the Bible with other people, do that. Search and inquire. Thirdly, be a preacher. Be a proclaimer. Be a proclaimer of the good news. Be a declarer of the good things that are yours through faith in Christ. And then lastly, be like the angels. Crane your neck. Look closely. Long to see the amazing grace of God given to us in Christ. Amen. We're going to pray together. And then we're going to have the opportunity to share in the Lord's table. This morning, if you're here with us and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, we invite you to partake with us. It's a very simple meal that the Lord's given us to where we can remember these things concerning this salvation. As you hold the bread and hold the cup this morning, think about your salvation. If there are sins that need to be confessed, do that. And ask the Holy Spirit to warm your heart, to warm your heart with these wonderful truths. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for giving us such great, great truths in your word. Spirit of God, we thank and praise you for your great, great role, your critical role, without which we would not have these things, that you would inspire the prophets, that you would fill the mouths of those who preach and proclaim the good news, that you would give us the assurance that when we open our mouths and share the good news, that you will be speaking through us And then, Lord Jesus, there would be nothing to proclaim if it were not for you. We would have no good news. We would have no good news. And so we praise you, Savior, Savior, What a great Savior you are. And Father, I would pray for any who are here. You know the hearts of each one. Any, Lord, who need to be saved, that today could be their day. They could turn to you and trust in Christ who died for their sins. That they could say, yes, Lord Jesus, I need you. I want you. I give my life to you. We give you thanks and praise. In the great name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, amen.